Hi, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is Another Kingdom. Be sure to head over to dailywire.com to get early access to our episodes. Last time on Another Kingdom, using a phone number his sister Riley left for him, Austin made contact with Jason Broadstreet, a tech billionaire. Broadstreet told Austin that he had fed Riley information about Serge Orozco's 730 Club that she had embedded in her videos. But when Austin went to Broadstreet's estate to hear more, he found the billionaire hanging from the ceiling, dead. Austin recovered Broadstreet's phone and left, but not before seeing the police arrive and the person of Orozco's assassin, Slick. Using a motel computer for research, Austin found the 730 Club was a club of billionaires who met yearly in the Oregon woods to discuss their plans to improve the world by destroying religion, freedom, and democracy, and replacing them with rule by experts, namely themselves. In a photograph of their forest mansion, Austin saw the shadow of Curtin the wizard and was so shocked, he stumbled out of the motel right back into the mansion maze in Edgemont. There, he confronted Curtin himself, who offered him a chance to escape the mansion but led him instead into a small room where the door vanished and he found himself trapped. And now, Another Kingdom, Episode 7, performed by Michael Knowles. For a moment, I just stood there, staring at the place where the door had been. My pulse was hammering so hard inside my head that it drowned out my thoughts. I felt it like the ticking of a watch, every heartbeat a second lost, morning coming, tick by tock. I turned back to the room. My heart sank. I knew this place. It was familiar, like everything in Curtin's maze. It was a small space, narrow. The walls were wood. The floor was wood with an oval braid rug covering part of it. There was a small bed against one wall, a small window above the bed, a shelf set just above eye level, a lantern on the shelf. The shelf, the lantern. Yes, it came back to me. It was the scene from the movie, from Horror Mansion. The one scene I half remembered. I moved to the little bed. I knelt on the mattress and looked out the window. I saw the square down there. I saw the horse and buggy come out of the fog. I saw the woman in the bonnet, the man with the stick, the witchy crone. It was the same scene, the same loop as before, except now I was watching it from the other direction. Of course, I remembered. The square. That was from the movie, too. That's why it never changed. That's why it kept on repeating. I was trapped in a scene from the movie. How would I ever get out? I panicked then. I lost control. I tried frantically to open the window. It wouldn't budge. I lay down on the bed and tried to kick through the pane. Once, twice, again. The glass wouldn't break. Down deep, I knew it never would. Fighting pure hysteria, I stood off the bed. I looked up at the lantern. I knew I had to take it down. That was the next part of the scene. I had to play the scene out. I didn't want to. I would be part of it then, caught in the loop, but I couldn't think of anything else to do. I reached up to the shelf. I thought, the bird, the dead bird, that's where it is. It's up there. The image came into my mind clearly now. A dead sparrow with some kind of ceremonial knife stuck through the heart of it. Only it was not a knife. That was the twist in the plot. I took hold of the lantern. I drew it toward me. 
As I did, it bumped into something, the corpse of the sparrow. The dead bird fell off the shelf and landed on the floor at my feet. I knelt down beside it to get a better look. The bird was stiff and staring. The narrow knife was stuck into its breast. The handle was etched with mysterious runes. I gazed down at the creature. I remembered the scene from Horror Mansion. There was a woman in this room, a woman doing what I was doing now. A blonde in a black skirt and a white blouse. When did I watch the film? Why did I watch it? I couldn't remember. I didn't want to remember. Almost without willing it, I knelt down and set the lantern on the floor beside me. I took the bird into my hand. I remembered the woman in the movie holding the bird as I was doing. I remembered how it had dripped blood. It dripped blood. As I watched, I saw the warm fluid run out of the bird's body and dribble along the length of the small blade. It fell onto my fingers and leaked through, pattering on the floor. The woman in the movie had pulled the blade out next. I pulled the blade out. It stuck just at the very last, and I had to turn it to work it free. That was when the plot twist revealed itself. The knife wasn't a knife. It was a key. And the moment I turned it and pulled it out of the bird, there was a click. I looked up. A rectangular portion of the wall swung open. A secret door. More of Curtin's maze. I held my breath, staring through the doorway into the darkness beyond. More darkness. A sound came to me. People chanting, murmuring some cultic plain song in low voices far away. The song was rhythmic, ritualistic, solemn. It sent a chill all through me. Something terrible was in there. I could not remember what, but in the movie, something terrible happened next. I did not want to remember. But what could I do? There was no way out but in. I heard the bell tolling in the church tower. 5 a.m. Time was passing faster, speeding up. At this rate, the sun would rise in mere minutes. I set the bird aside, picked up the lantern, rose from my knee. I wiped my bloody hand on my leggings. I stepped to the door. I stepped through. Suddenly, lightheaded, I saw the stars spinning around me. I dropped onto one knee again, feeling not wood now, but the rough asphalt through my jeans. I was back in the real world, back in the parking lot of the motel near Half Moon Bay. I could hear the bay water plashing and the traffic whooshing and the wind whispering through the branches of a nearby tree. Reality, blessed reality. Reality had never seemed so sweet, and yet still haunted by that ghostly room, by the knowledge that any moment I might be flung back there, imprisoned in that movie scene again. I felt I couldn't bear it. I felt I might lose my mind. Something fluttered then against my thigh. I was so disoriented, it was a moment before I realized what it was. The phone in my pocket was buzzing, Jason Broadstreet's phone the phone I had used to call Riley. Was she calling me back? I dug into my pocket quickly. I worked the phone out, rising to my feet. I answered eagerly. Hello? Hello? No response. Silence. I stood in the chill night, listening. I was afraid to speak, afraid of who might be on the other end of the line. Then came the broken whisper. Jason? Riley, I breathed. She gasped. Boss? Yeah, it's me. She began to whimper like a child. Where's Jason? There was no hiding it from her. It would make the news soon if it hadn't already. They got him, baby. Oh, God. It's going to be all right. Oh, God. Hang on to yourself. Hang on. Oh, Aus, Austin, I'm in so much trouble. I know. I know it, kid. You and me both. I began to pace around the lot as I spoke. Just hang on, okay? Hold it together. 
I'm going to help you. How? She wailed. How can you help me? They got Jason. Oh, God. I know, but I'm still here. I'm coming for you. Her voice rose to a high, crazy note. Don't let them get me, Oz. Don't let them. I won't. I'm so, so scared. Oh, God, Jason. I know. I could hear her crying over the line. It hurt me inside, just like it used to hurt me when we were little. Where are you, Riley? It was a moment before she could speak. I can't tell you. I can't say it over the phone. They might hear me. She was probably right. Look what had happened to Broad Street. What about your phone? I asked her. Is it safe? Can they trace it? She came out of her hysteria just long enough to get petulant with her annoying big brother. I know how to hide the phone from them, Austin. I'm not a baby. I smiled. It was good to hear there was still some spirit in her, but she broke down again at once. They're all around me, Aus. They can't see me, but they're everywhere. They've been all around me for days. I could feel her terror. I could feel it inside me. It was incredibly frustrating. Here she was on the line and there was no way to reach her, no way to help her. I ran my free hand up through my hair. I had to stay calm, stay focused, do what I could do. One step, then another. If I kept moving, maybe the path to her would open up. The movie, Rye, I said now. What? Tell me about the movie. The one you left for me at the house. The movie? She cried. You know the movie. You watched the movie. Don't you remember? I stopped pacing. I tried to think. Did I remember? I wasn't sure. I reached into my shirt to touch the locket there. There was no warmth coming off it, no magic power. But it didn't matter. The memory came back to me anyway. I saw myself lying on my bed as a kid, my laptop on my belly, the headphones in my ears. I was glancing from the monitor to my bedroom door, afraid someone might come in and catch me. Sure, I told her. I watched the movie, I remember. But I don't remember why. Because Daddy made me watch it. Riley cried out, sobbing harder. He made me watch that scene again and again and again. I screamed and screamed, Oz, but he made me. No, Daddy, no. I don't want to see it again. I won't tell, I promise. I remember, I said softly. I remember that high-pitched little girl shriek of hers. I remembered creeping down the hall to see what was happening. How had I forgotten? What my father had done to her. What I had let him do. You were just a child, I told myself. You were a little boy. There was nothing you could have done to help her. But it didn't make me feel any better. I was choking on guilt and pity. Poor Riley. Poor little girl. Poor me. Poor boy. Poor everyone. Riley was flat out sobbing now. Oh, Oss, she just managed to say. I'm next. They're going to kill me next. I won't let it happen, Riley, I told her. My voice was trembling. I won't tell. I swear I won't tell. I won't make any more videos. I swear. Tell them, Oz. Tell Mom and Dad. My breath came out of me in a long, angry hiss. Mom and Dad. Dear old Mom and Dad. I stood in the parking lot. My head tilted back. The phone lifted to my ear. My eyes lifted to the stars. The stars were only dimly visible above the light of the motel sign. I stared up at them and listened to my little sister crying. All my life, her tears had fallen on my heart like acid. All my life, they'd scalded me inside so that I could hardly stand it. Her tears, her shrieks of terror. I had made myself forget them because I couldn't stand the pain. My eyes filled. The dim stars blurred. I clenched my free hand in a fist and raised it to the sky. Tell them, Oss, 
Riley went on sobbing. Tell mom and dad I won't make any more videos, I swear. I'll never tell. You'll tell, I said. I had to force the words out through my tight throat. We're both going to tell. We're going to tell everyone. No, 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 she cried. She sniffled. She sobbed. You don't understand. They're too powerful. They control everything. They are everything. Come on, Riley. Don't get crazy on me. There's got to be a way to stop them. We just have to figure it out, that's all. We'll expose them to the news sites, on social media, to the police. They write the news sites. They run social media. They are the police. Still looking at the sky, I brought my hand down on top of my head. Well, they can't be everybody, I told her. There has to be a way. Broad Street thought there was. He was one of them, and he thought they could be stopped. He thought there was a chance, at least, or he wouldn't have called you in the first place. Broad Street's name seemed to have an effect on her. I heard her ragged breathing get steadier. He said, Jason told me. He told me everything was at the 730 house. He said it was right there in plain sight on the wall. All he had to do was take a picture and bring it to me. He said I was the only one he could trust. I rolled my eyes. Terrific, I thought. If Crazy Riley, with her banned videos, was the only trustworthy news source in America, we were all in big, big trouble. All right, I said. Do you know where the house is? Jason told me. It's in the woods somewhere, near some town. Bend, Oregon, I told her. That's right, Bend. 130 miles northeast of Bend, on some road. Route 27, I think. That's it. The trail at the top of the mountain. All right, I told her. I'll find it. Just stay by the... I heard her gasp. What? I said. What is it? But the line was silent for a long moment. A long, long moment. She didn't say a word. Then came her squeaky whisper. They're close. Who? Who's close, Rye? I have to go. Riley, I said. But there was a click and the sound of the line changed. I knew she was gone. I cursed. I lowered my hand, slowly, slowly. I shut off the phone. I stood there in the parking lot and drew in breath and smelled the distant bay on the night air. I felt my sister's terror in my heart. We'll get back to the story in a minute. If you're enjoying Another Kingdom, please be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes. It really helps. And then go over to dailywire.com and watch Another Kingdom. Our incredible art, animation, and dramatic footage brings the story to life. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Long night. Not much sleep. In the first dull light of a gray morning, I drove away from the motel. I went into the little city. I drew out a long breakfast at a quaint diner on a corner of Main Street. As I ate, I watched the electronics store across the street, waited for it to open. I had made my plan. I had to find the 730 house, the mansion in the Oregon woods. I had to get into the house and find the information Broad Street was hoping to pass on to Riley. It was in plain sight, he'd told her, right on the wall. With that information, I would expose Orozco and whatever he was up to. He'd be arrested, or at least disgraced, and that would take the heat off Riley so she could come out of hiding. I know, it was a crap idea, virtually guaranteed to accomplish nothing and get me killed. But hey, every plan has its flaws, right? It was the only thing I could think of. Before I did anything else, though, I had to watch the DVD, Horror Mansion. Why? Because any minute, I could walk through a door and find myself back in the movie, stuck in the loop in the Horror Mansion of Edgemond with time careening toward dawn. If I could just see what was in that scene, maybe I could figure a way out of it. Maybe. The electronics store didn't open until 10. 
As soon as I saw the store clerk unlock the door, I crossed the street, went in, and bought an external DVD drive and a headset. Last one I've got, the store clerk mused aloud. He was a tall, overweight, red-haired nerd with wireless glasses. No one uses DVDs much anymore. Well, I'm stuck in a horror movie in an alternate universe in danger of being devoured by a dragon every night for the rest of eternity, so I've got to watch the DVD to find a way out. I actually said that, out loud, and the nerd, so helped me, nodded thoughtfully, as if it made perfect sense to him. Hard to know who was crazier, me or the rest of the world. I carried the DVD drive down the street to the library. I spoke with the librarian there, a short squat lady who looked like the old maid on a kid's playing card. I told her I was a film student who had to watch a movie for class. She set me up at a computer in one of the carols against the windows. I sat at the carol, a desk surrounded by three walls made out of something meant to look like wood. Beyond the knotwood walls, the floor-to-ceiling windows looked out on the bay. If I tilted back in my chair, I could see it, the water appearing metallic under the low clouds. I plugged the DVD player into the computer. I slid Riley's disc into the player. I started the movie. The credits were like my dream. Swirling mist condensed to spell out the title words. Frang, went the music. Horror Mansion, spelled the mist. The story begins with a creepy little scene that takes place in the Puritan past. A mob is burning three witches at the stake in a square of the small New England town of Wildwood. The mob is screaming. The witches are writhing in their bonds. One witch offers to expose the witch leader in exchange for her life. It's the judge, she says. The most respected man in town. The mob only mocks her. The witches shriek in agony as they set them ablaze. We pan away from the field to Horror Mansion, a spooky old house that overlooks the scene. Lots of gables and peaked roofs, like the mansion in Edgemont. There's a light on in the window of an upstairs room. We zoom in and enter a study decorated with a desk, a globe, a leather wing chair, and shelves of books. There's a shadow on the wall, the shadow of a man. We never see his face, but we hear his voice. It's the judge. His daughter comes in, a sweet, virginal girl in her 20s. The judge thanks her when she serves him tea. She leaves and locks the door. The judge rises to his feet. And yes, it turns out, he is a witch, the last witch, the chief witch, whom no one suspects. He's desperate to avoid the fate of his followers. So he conjures the devil. The devil arrives. Another shadow, darker but shapeless. The chief witch makes a deal with him. The deal is this. The chief witch promises he will sacrifice an innocent victim to the devil once every year. As long as he supplies the victim, the devil will let him live. Shortly after, the mob, carried away with bloodlust, storms the judge's house, calling for him to come out. The judge does come out. He is dragging his daughter with him by the arm. He denounces her to the mob. She's the witch, he says. As the daughter screams piteously for her father, the mob carries her away to be burned at the stake. She's the first sacrifice. I sat in the carol, watching. I felt a tightness at the pit of my stomach. The movie's production values were garbage, and the acting was hilariously second-rate. But all the same, it was a scary scene. Convincing. Disturbing. Now we cut to modern-day Boston, a college classroom. The whole opening flashback turns out to be part of a lecture that's being given. We see the professor standing before a blackboard, talking about witches and superstition and the paranormal and so on. The professor is a tall, lean man with a widow's peak. The scene blindsided me. It was a real shock. My stomach lurched. I felt my breakfast surge up into my throat. The professor was the guy from the house in Edgemont, the servant-slash-priest, the dark man who was really curtain. 
The wizard must have found the repressed image of this character in my mind and used it as a disguise. I swallowed my bacon and eggs for the second time that morning. I forced myself to focus on the movie again. The professor finishes his lecture. A pretty young co-ed approaches him. She's the woman I remembered, the blonde in the black skirt and white blouse. She's the professor's protege. Inspired by his lectures, she plans to go to Wildwood to do research into witchcraft. She will write her thesis on what she finds. The professor is pleased with her decision. So off she goes. She drives to Wildwood in a gigantic old American car. It's the size of a dirigible. Must get half a mile to the gallon. She reaches the town. At night, of course, because it's a horror movie. A blonde parks her car, steps out. It's dark. It's foggy. And weirdly, Wildwood looks unchanged since Puritan days. It's lit by torches instead of streetlights. There's a line of old buildings across the street, including a tavern. There's a church in the distance and gravestones under a silhouetted tree. There's even a horse and buggy that passes in and out of sight in the fog. There's a woman in a bonnet, a man with a crane, a witchy crone. As I stared at the computer monitor, I felt sweat break out on my forehead. It was the same scene, a scene I'd been trapped in in Edgemon. I had to lean back in my chair and look out the window to assure myself I wasn't trapped there now. I leaned forward to watch the movie again. The sweat on my forehead beaded. The bead ran down my temple. My breath grew shallow and quick. The girl turns around, and there behind her is Horror Mansion, the spooky old house from the opening sequence. It's the Wildwood Inn now. She goes inside. I watched, sweating. The spooky old woman innkeeper shows the blonde to her room. It's the small bedroom, the same room I had been in. The blonde finds the lantern, same as me. She finds the dead bird, the key, the secret door. She hears the sound of distant chanting, same as me. Carrying the lantern, the blonde goes through the door and down a flight of stairs. She follows the chanting sound down a narrow corridor. The corridor is draped with cobwebs. There are statues and gargoyles and niches on the wall. The flickering light of the lantern makes the statues seem alive. And some of them are alive. Some of the statues are really people. The people peel off from the wall after the blonde's gone past them. They come sneaking up behind her. One of them passes a gargoyle that is holding a long dagger in its claws. He takes the dagger and lifts it, the shadow of the blade wavering on the wall. I was frightened now, really frightened. Not just because it was a scary scene, but because I knew that, in Edgemond, I was trapped in the scene, doomed to play it out myself. I kept thinking, they can't kill her, can they? She's the star of the movie. She's got to escape. The blonde reaches the end of the hall. She steps into a final room. Here is the source of the chanting, a group of cowled witches, men and women, standing with their heads bowed. They surround a large stone altar table, a table of sacrifice. As the blonde enters, the chief witch, standing at the head of the table, lifts his face to her. It's the professor, her professor from the college in Boston, the dark servant priest. He smiles at the blonde in welcome. You see, my dear, he says, it's all true. The blonde's eyes widen in fear as she understands. Her professor is the chief witch who made the deal with the devil all those centuries ago. He's still alive because he is still sacrificing innocent victims to the devil. He has lured her here for that purpose. Then they grab her. The people who have followed her down the corridor, they seize the blonde by the arms and lift her off her feet and carry her to the altar table. The blonde shrieks and struggles, but it's no use. They lay her, screaming and helpless, on the stone surface. 
They hand the long dagger to the professor, servant, priest, chief witch. The blonde begs for her life, twisting uselessly in the iron grips of the witches who hold her down. Please, she shrieks. I won't tell, I swear, I'll never tell, please. My eyes filled with tears. The blonde was screaming the same words my sister spoke to me on the phone. And I remembered. That was why my father had made her watch this movie, this scene, over and over. She was a four-year-old child, shrieking in terror. I promise I won't tell, Daddy, I won't tell. But he made her keep watching so she would learn what happens to bad little girls who climb around in cramped corridors and learn secrets they shouldn't know. The sweat ran down my temple. A tear ran down my cheek. The witches hold the shrieking blonde on the altar table. They pull her white blouse open and give us a thrilling horror movie look at her lacy bra. The professor lifts the long dagger high. The camera follows the dagger up into the air. Please, please, no, screams the blonde wildly. Then the dagger plunges down out of sight. The screaming ceases abruptly. The camera pans away and down, down to the base of the altar. Blood pours over the side of the table into a gutter made for the purpose. We follow the blood along the gutter and through a hole in the wall. The hole leads outside into the fog. The fog swirls around Horror Mansion. Sick and pale, I sank back into the Carol chair. I stared at the monitor with hollow eyes as the movie continued. There wasn't much else to see. The rest of the picture was dull, standard B-movie stuff. It was just that scene, that truly horrifying scene, that scene my father had made Riley watch again and again. And I had heard my little sister's pitiful screams of terror. I had crept into his study later that night and swiped the DVD and watched it for myself. And then I had forgotten, because I couldn't bear what I knew. I couldn't bear the fact that Riley screamed in hysterical fear at night because my father had subjected her to that mental torture in order to terrorize her into silence. But silence about what? What had Riley learned? What had she overheard when she was sitting in the air duct where all the whispers of the house collected? What lay hidden in her crazy videos that made Orozco feel he had to kill her? What lay hidden in her broken mind? When the final credits rolled, I blinked back into awareness like coming out of a trance. I wiped my face dry with my palm. I reached out a shaking hand and unplugged the DVD player from the computer. I sat there, slumped in my chair, with the gizmo lying in my lap. After a while, I sat up straight. I leaned into the keyboard again. I called up the old feature story about a Roscoe in the New York Times. I scrolled to the photograph again. I gazed at the wide-angle photo that showed the club members standing in front of the mansion. That's where the answers were, in the 730 house, in the forest mansion that looked so much like the mansion in Edgemon, the mansion where I was trapped inside the movie. The answers, Broadstreet told my sister, were written in plain sight on the wall. I had to go and find them. I was about to close the page on the computer when I remembered what I had seen last time. I felt compelled to look again at the photograph, to look again at the mansion, to look again at the upper window where the cowled figure of curtain stood draped in obscurity. I did look, but the window was dark, all dark. Curtin's figure was gone. I drove all day, all day and into the night, on freeways up the coast, then on back roads into the interior. I had stopped in San Francisco to buy supplies. Food, clothes, a backpack, a flashlight, a canteen, a handheld GPS, and some tools for a break-in. I even ditched Broad Street's phone and got a new burner. 
I memorized Riley's number, then threw the old phone away. Then I was ready. I drove and drove through Northern California into Oregon. An indigo dusk spread from the empty east to where the sun burned fiery behind the clouds. Darkness fell. I drove. By midnight, I was on Route 27, winding up a mountain with nothing outside the windows but a jagged black tree line, a frowning forest of ponderosa pines. At the peak of the rise, I saw the fire trail Riley had mentioned. I turned off onto a broad but bumpy dirt road. The road went on a long, long way, deep and then deeper into the woods. It grew narrower, rougher. The trees closed around it. In the middle of nowhere, I passed a turn-off. It was blocked with a metal gate and marked with a sign that said, Private Property. I took that to be the main entrance to Orozco's land. I went beyond it, following the GPS to the end of the dirt road. Best to walk in through the trees, I thought, and avoid any guards or cameras. I pulled onto soft duff, killed the lights, then the engine, got out of the Passat, worked my backpack over my shoulders, hiked into the woods. There is no night like night in the forest, no darkness like the darkness there. The autumn moonlight, silver through the evergreens, cast a pale glow over a landscape of hunkering mystery. There was a fractal-like sameness to the tangled depths receding from me in every direction. Whichever way I turned seemed a fantastic mirror image of every other. It was immersive, disorienting. After a while, I felt there was only this, this forest, no world beyond the wood. The sky was clear now. Through the treetops, I could see the stars of the Milky Way spilled carelessly over the blue-black expanse. A gibbous moon bobbed in and out of view among the branches. I headed slantwise back toward the main entrance. I picked out the path with the flashlight. I tromped slowly under the majestic and silent trees. They seemed to glower down at me and watch me pass. I couldn't begin to describe how fantastic and grotesque it felt to come suddenly upon that mansion. I spotted the hazy glow of it through the leaves first, and then reached the tree line and saw it in full. It stood in a broad clearing ringed with small spotlights turned down dim. Their beams cut into the thin forest mist and filled it with off-white illumination. After the dreamlike darkness, it seemed a dreamlike light. But to see the house itself, it felt so impossibly strange, strange and frightening, to see that place, almost exactly the same as the house in Edgeman, which was almost exactly the same as the mansion in the movie. The sight set off a starburst of agitation inside me. The movie, Edgemond, Oregon. It was as if I had reached the junction where the three worlds met. Hidden just within the trees, I lowered myself onto one knee. The cold of the forest dirt seeped through my jeans and chilled me. I stayed there and watched the house a while. Most of the lights in the place were out. The interior was dim and gray, but at a window here and there, the outglow of a lamp was visible. As I watched, I saw a figure pass across a second-story pane, a guard. I cursed beneath my breath. I wasn't sure I had the courage for this. If it weren't for the pitiful memory of my shrieking baby sister, if it weren't for the sorrowful sound of her voice on the phone, I'll never tell, I might well have run away. Instead, I crept out of the woods into the clearing. A broad dirt and gravel driveway surrounded the place. Dead leaves tumbled over it in a soft night breeze. The leaves clattered and the stones beneath them stirred and rattled. I hoped those noises would cover my crunching footsteps as I approached. There was only a pine or two here to hide behind. I hid behind one and scoped the surroundings. A broad dirt road, the main entrance I had passed, entered the clearing from my right. There were two jeeps parked along the side of it. 
Did that mean there were two guards inside, or four, or more? I crouched low and crossed the rest of the distance to the house until I was pressed close against the wall. I rose up to peek through a first-floor window. A single lamp was lit inside. In its dull yellow gleam, I made out a rustic reading room, bookshelves and stuffed chairs and side tables for wine. There were no guards in there, as far as I could see. I took a chance, switched on my flashlight, shone it through the glass and examined the inside of the window frame. There didn't seem to be an alarm on it. I couldn't find one anyway, so I switched off the flash, slung my backpack off my shoulders, and rooted inside it for my tools. Then I went to work on the window. It was remarkably easy to break in. A small jimmy pried the upper and lower frame apart. A flathead screwdriver worked through the gap between. I pushed the latch aside. I held my breath as I lifted the window, waiting for an alarm to start screaming. Silence. No alarm. So easy. As I climbed over the bottom frame into the reading room, I thought again of the New York Times article. A listener finds himself swept up in the sheer prophetic scope of Orozco's vision. Right. Maybe Orozco didn't need fancy locks and alarms to protect his secrets. Why should he? If he wanted to take over the world and put an end to the fiction of human rights, the most powerful newspaper in the country seemed to feel, hey, go to it. Make the world a better place, you wise old billionaire you. I crept across the reading room. The floors were made of old wood, but rugs covered most of them and muffled my footsteps. I peeked out through the door and saw a long, shadowy hallway running to the foyer. No lights. Only a misty glow leaking in through the windows. No guards in sight. Just a few stands with busts and vases on them. Some paintings on the wall. An indentation that might have been a doorway. That was it. So all I had to do now was find the writing on the wall, before the guards found me. I started down the long hall, and just as I did, suddenly, light bathed me. I froze. Two bright beams passed over me, headlights coming through the hall window from the outside. I dropped the floor like a sack of cement and lay there as the beams crossed the wall above my head. Then the corridor grew dark again. I crawled to the window and slowly lifted up until I could peek through. My breath came out of me in a hoarse rasp. The Cadillac Escalade had just pulled up at the front door. Its headlights snapped off, and Slick and his muscle man Moses rose out into the spotlit mist. Now I heard footsteps inside the house. Someone was descending a flight of stairs. A guard came into view in the foyer at the end of the hall. He was dressed all in black, black slacks and a sweater, but I could still see him in the dim lamplight. I lay pressed to the floor and watched. Another guard came into the foyer from the hallway on the far side. Guard two was carrying a small flashlight. Its thin beam danced over the black figure of guard one. My heart beat hard against the runner. If that beam flashed down the corridor, it would pick me out easily. I looked for an escape route and saw a door right across from me, but I didn't dare try it. The risk of drawing the guard's attention was too great. Now, anyway, guard two doused his flash. The hole was dark again. I lay and watched as guard one opened the door to let in Slick and Moses. I saw the four men gather in the dark, four shadows. I could hear them speaking clearly. Anything, said Slick. He sounded brusque and relaxed, a competent professional at work. No, guard one answered him. We came out as soon as you called, but there's been no sign of him. Are you sure he's heading this way? Slick made an uncertain gesture. We picked up a search for the place out of a library in Half Moon Bay. They were using one of our man's search engines. Anyway, the librarian described our guy so we thought it was worth checking. 
Why don't you just put out a bolo on him? Guard 2 asked. At this point, it'd be best if we can keep him out of the system. He has a lot to say for himself, and not everyone is on our side. Our man would like him dealt with privately, if possible, Slick sighed. All right, he told the black-clad guards. Let's just go through the house one more time and make sure he's not here. Then you can go home and get some sleep. Moses and I will take the second and third floor. You guys split up and cover the rooms down here. They almost caught me right then and there. I was listening to them, thinking about what they said. Not only was there no alarm here, there hadn't even been any guards until Slick called them out. Now they were going to search the house and leave. Clearly, my best move was to crawl back to the study, escape out the window, and come back later when the guards were gone. Which was exactly what I was about to do when they nearly got me. Because just then, the shadow of guard two moved to the wall and lifted his hand. I guessed what was going to happen one split second before it did. I rolled frantically across the floor, hid myself behind a vase stand, inches from the door there. Guard two flicked the switch on the wall and the lights came on all over the ground floor. No shadows left to hide in. I'll go this way, someone said. I couldn't see them anymore. The vase stand blocked my view, but one of them was going to come toward me for sure. I had to get out of sight fast. I drew my feet under me, rose up on a knee, and reached for the doorknob right by my nose. I could hear footsteps coming down the hall now. I figured I had about ten seconds before the guard reached me, saw me. If the door was locked, I was finished. I held my breath. It wasn't easy with my pulse pounding. I turned the knob as slowly as I dared, slowly enough so that the bolt came back almost noiselessly. The door swung open. The guard's footsteps grew closer, very close. Another second and he'd come around the vase stand and there I'd be. I slipped through the door. And holding the knob tight, I closed the door silently and silently rolled the bolt back into place. I was in a stairwell now, a back stair rising upward. I heard the guard as he continued his approach. Would he pass by? No. He stopped right outside the door. Of course, he was going to check the stairwell. I flew up the stairs on tiptoe so as not to make a sound. The stairs wound around in a slow arc that ended at a door on the second floor. Just as I reached the landing, I heard the door below open. I pressed against the wall, breathless. The guard shone his flashlight up the stairs at me. If the beam had been a bullet, it would have left a scar. That's how close it came. But it didn't touch me. The guard didn't see me there, trying to meld my body with the stairwell wall. The flashlight beam swept away. The door below clicked shut. I stayed where I was a long moment, trying to will my heart to slow down. As I stood there on the landing, my cheek pressed close to the wall. I heard a soft jingling noise below. Keys. The guard locked the downstairs door with a loud snap. Shit, I whispered. If the second story door was locked as well, I was trapped in here. But even if it wasn't locked, I couldn't carry out my plan of escape. I had to find another way out. I tried the knob. To my immense relief, the door opened easily. I pushed it out about an inch and peeked through the gap. There was a short stretch of wall in front of me, a corridor of doors I could see off to my right. There was a railing to my left running above the foyer. The gallery lights came on. Slick and Moses were just coming up the main stairs, just coming into view. I watched through the narrow opening as the two men paused on the landing to consult. You go upstairs, Slick said. I'll look around down here. He brought a flashlight out of his pocket and switched it on. You got it, said Moses. He wound around the stairway newel post and headed up the next flight to the third floor. 
I drew the stairwell door almost shut and watched to see which way Slick would go. I got a break there. He turned to his left, away from me, and went down the hall to the last door at the end. He opened the door and went through, out of sight into the room beyond. I saw his flashlight beam waving around in there. There was no time to hesitate. If I stayed where I was, he would find me eventually, and with the door locked below, there'd be no way out. I had to get to the front stairs and go back down to the ground floor. Then maybe I could dash out the front door or out a window and get away. I hurried down the hall toward the stairs. I passed one door, then another, then another. I was almost there, one more door away. But now I heard a noise from the farthest room. I saw Slick's flashlight moving back toward the hall. He was going to come out before I reached the stairs. I did the only thing I could. I pulled open the nearest door, the last door. My heart leapt with hope. There was a stairway inside, a stairway down. I was about to step over the threshold when I realized it wasn't a stairway in this house. It was the stairway in the house in Edgemond, the stairway out of the small bedroom with the dead bird in it. If I went through the door, I would pass through the veil of transition. I would be back in the wizard's clutches, back in the endless maze, back in the horror movie, heading down into the cellar where the movie scene witches were waiting to grab me and carry me off to the sacrifice. I froze where I was, and Slick's flashlight hit me. Hold it right there, punk, he said with a laugh. I gave a second's thought to going through the door, going back to the wizard's mansion, but I couldn't quite bring myself to do it. And anyway, the hesitation cost me the chance. It was already too late. Slick had his gun trained on me. He'd have blown me to kingdom come before I could take a step. Well, 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 he said. Gun in hand, he strolled toward me. His tall, lean frame in its blue suit was relaxed and casual. His long, cruel, handsome face was smiling. He went on smiling right up to the moment he struck me down. Next time on Another Kingdom. Slick straddled a chair and looked down at me where I lay on the floor groaning. My boy, he said to me, this is not going to be a good day for you. We're going to torture you, and then we're going to kill you, okay? I rolled my eyes toward him. I could see he wasn't kidding. He was telling me exactly what he was going to do, torture and kill me, okay? Not really okay, no, I said. This has been Another Kingdom by Andrew Claven, performed by Michael Knowles. This episode directed and produced by Jonathan Hay, produced by Mathis Glover, executive producer, Jeremy Boring, associate producer, Austin Stevens, edited by Jim Nickel, sound design and mix by Dylan Case, audio recorded by Mike Cormina, music composed by Adrian Seeley, hair, makeup, and wardrobe by Jesua Alvera. DIT by Scott Key, and our production assistant is Colton Haas. Visual supervisor, Jake Jackson. Lead illustrator, Rebecca Shapiro. Illustrations by Anthony Clark. Animations by John Dretzka, Cole Holloway, and Yi Han Su. Another Kingdom is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018.